And one story that always kind of captures my imagination the streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. I'm Dana Balut, and this is Kerning Cultures. Today we're doing something different. As you might have heard, there's a football tournament or soccer, depending on where you live, going on at the moment. Really, it's a World Cup like nothing we've ever seen. And it's the first time the competition has been hosted in the Middle East, which is huge. For thousands of people across the region, it's the first time they've been able to see the games up close. Richarlison again! Oh my goodness, what a goal! And it's the first time a team from the Arab world or Africa has gotten this far into the tournament. A genuine tilt in the axis of world football because Morocco have smashed through that glass ceiling. But it's also a World Cup that's left us with mixed feelings. Hosting the tournament in Qatar has put a spotlight on the fact that thousands of migrant workers have died during the construction of the World Cup. And it's also highlighted the ways in which Qatar and other GCC countries' laws exploit workers and discriminate against migrants and the LGBTQ plus community. But these stories have also played out in the world's media in a way that's felt to a lot of people like it's unfair, lacking nuance, and even racist. Well, now we got used to the hypocrisy and double standards for uh, uh, the uh, Western countries. And as we all noticed, based on the massive anti-Qatari coverage, uh, the Western media have an Orientalist view against Qatar hosting the biggest football event. We didn't quite know where to land on this, how we should form an opinion about this World Cup. Frankly, it's been complicated. And I think keep politics out of sport, but when it comes to human rights, it's a bit different. So since it started, and because we're such a global team, we've been going out to speak with fans across the globe. I did see both sides of the debate, and I'm very like present on the like the social media topic, the controversies that happened, but it didn't affect my opinion on it because I know it's just fake woke. To get a sense of what people make of it all the personal highs and lows of the tournament itself. Saudi Arabia went so strong today. I'm so proud of Saudi Arabia. And in a World Cup like this, asking if it's really possible to separate politics from the sport. I feel like, like, you know, we're here for the game. We should just enjoy the game and that's it. Honestly, I'm going to hand over to our wonderful exactly. producers, Ban Kawi in Jordan, Ahmed Ashur in Bahrain, and Alex Atak in the UK. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of this World Cup, I wonder if we can go back, like way back, and try to think of your earliest memory of the World Cup or of watching the World Cup. Um, or if not the earliest memory, then at least the one that seems to, that stuck with you for a long time, that resonates with you still today. My one's really easy. Um, I don't know why I remember this so clearly, but I 
So, 2002. Owen's sprinting away to the left here against Lucio. Michael Owen for England! It's a great chance! And he scored! Michael Owen! England got through to the quarterfinals. And um, I must have been like 9, 10. And I'd like had a sleepover at a friend's house. And well, he, so he, I still remember like where he lived. He lived in the higher Regency like apartment building in Deira in Dubai. Um, and we'd stayed up all night, I guess, with excitement because I think the game like started really early in the morning in Dubai. And I remember like we were supposed to go to sleep and we couldn't. And um, we we're kind of like delirious from lack of sleep as like 10 year olds. And um, I don't know if you remember Ronaldinho's free kick in that game that sent England out. They're taking up the far post position, those two. He's really far out. David Seaman, the England goalie, is not expecting him to shoot at all. And he's, like, completely off his line. Ronaldinho takes the free kick and... Oh, and Seaman's been beaten! It's a goal! It hits this weird arc and sort of just, like, sails completely over David Seaman's head. He scored! from the free kick Ronaldinho has made it 2-1 Brazil and everybody was watching those in the penalty area maybe Seaman was as well the ball went over his head but that was my first memory of the World Cup with this sort of concoction of like devastation that England are clearly going out and I think we deserve to lose that game but also the like um, I guess the beauty of it that's pretty poetic that is that's such a vivid memory I don't know if I have... I mean, my, my my first memory was the 94 World Cup. It was the final. And it's so funny. You know how you talk about staying up late as a 10-year-old? That was exactly me. I was, I was, it must have been later than we were allowed to stay up. But there were lots of people. I couldn't tell you who now. Family, friends. And um, I didn't grow up in Amman, so I wasn't living here. But we were here for the summer because World Cups, except for this one, usually happen in the summer. And um, my parents dragged out this, like, giant, like, huge square cuboid television set to the balcony somehow. I don't know how, I don't know where they found their their tech savviness from. And we were all gathered watching it outside at night. And I remember being allowed to stay up really late. And um, and I remember at halftime kind of pretending to be the Brazilian footballers. And we were, you know, playing downstairs in the garage. Um, and then... Roberto Baggio. The saviour of Italy throughout this tournament. He's missed it! And Brazil win the World Cup! Just remembering how ecstatic everybody was when, when Italy missed that penalty and were out of the tournament. It was a penalties final and Brazil won. And I remember cheering and just being being like, oh, I guess I I guess I cheer for Brazil. Like not really understanding why, right? Which is really ironic because later in life, I would go on to support Italy in every World Cup. But it was just, it was so, it was like from that moment on, you knew, right? Like you knew you were always going to be emotionally attached to this one thing. But do you remember what it was about as a kid watching teams that you you weren't from either of those countries? Like what is it about the World Cup that has that effect? I don't think there was an alternative. I think in our minds... Other than Saudi, funny enough, I don't really remember us even expecting an, an, an Arab team, forget Team Jordan, but any Arab team to actually be featured. Like for us, it, oh, the World Cup was not really a World Cup. It was exclusive to European countries and Latin American countries. And that more or less continues to be the case, although 
who knows? I have a I have a feeling maybe this World Cup is changing how we, how we think about that a little bit. Ahmed, what's your earliest memory? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Qatar 2022. I'm not going to lie. Uh, my, uh, <laughs> I'm not that young. But I will say my favorite World Cup memory is not related to the World Cup or to the football at all. Because my earliest memory is of Shakira performing the Bombo remix of Hips Don't Lie <laughs> at the closing ceremony of the 2006 World Cup. And if anyone asks me, what is the performance that made you say that culture, in general, culture was a thing that I would be interested in as a human being, it would be that one performance by Shakira at the 2006 <laughs> World Cup ceremony. <laughs> And I kid you not, for that performance, I genuinely thought that football must be the greatest event on earth if the outcome of that sport would be a performance by Shakira. So I think this like gets me thinking, you know, this year specifically... Where have you been watching the proceedings from this year? Yeah, well, I got to say, so um, being in the UK at the moment, it's it's a bit it's a bit weird because I think in the UK at least the World Cup is so synonymous with the summer, and I think it feels a little bit this time like the UK doesn't quite know how to do a winter World Cup. Like it's kind of weird. Like you go into you go to like a pub or something that would that would show the game and. I mean, a lot of them have kind of been like pretty quiet. I don't know if I'm just going to the wrong places, but um, it it definitely, I haven't found a place yet that's been like full. Mm. It's so true that, 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 you know, it's funny you talk about it being synonymous with the summer. I will say this whole idea of it being in the winter is really bizarre. And it's so funny because I was out and about talking to people while they're watching the matches and I ended up talking to this ninth grader who was really excited to talk. In school? We uh, put the we put the games on the screen and we all watch together. Are you serious? What grade are you in? A nine. Oh no way! <laughs> That's so cool. They have it up in school. Yeah. Um, oh. And she's like, "Yeah, we all watch the Saudi Argentina game at school." And I'm like, "At school? I think playing World Cup matches for you at school. Like, nobody ever did that for us." And then I I realized yeah. that we were always out for the summer because like school was out in the summer, so so. We, we never had that. And it was just so funny that you're seeing this new generation like being fully invested actually. during school hours. So I'm a teacher, so we put it for our students to watch. But I didn't get to watch it because I had to watch the students. <laughs> Hold on a second. You you put the World Cup. This is like I was just talking yeah. to a ninth grader. She's like, yeah, all the World Cup is up in schools. I'm like, what? That never happened. Yes, of course it is. The kids wanted to leave. They wanted to go home to get, to watch the game. So I've been so my journey with the World Cup has started in Dubai. Testing one two. Testing one two. I was there when the opening ceremony and the opening match happened, and the Dubai experience is marked by collective fan zones. So there are a lot mm. of open air spaces where people are gathering. It's very loud and there's a whole pomp and circumstance to it. But this is an amazing experience. Like as if we have gone to Qatar and watching yeah. the real football. That's a really good vibe. 
I was there on opening the opening ceremony for the opening game, and a lot of the people that I talked to, interestingly, were very pessimistic about the way that Arab teams were going to perform in the games. Uh, and one of the people that I spoke to, you know, she spoke to me in Arabic, and she said, "Oh, the Saudi game is happening in two days. I know we're going to lose because it's against Argentina, but." All we can hope for is that we make our exit from the tournament with grace <laughs> and, you know, for the plot twist to come two days later and for KSA to win against Argentina. It was, it was quite funny to see that, that journey reach an end. Watching these Arab teams surprise and sort of crush our sense of defeatism that we are so attached to as as Arab spectators. You know, you ask, like, you know, what was it like watching teams that didn't represent a country that I come from? And having to support them and being like over the moon. I think because we're kind of like accustomed to watching other teams and in addition to Arab teams that are playing or Middle Eastern teams that are playing in the World Cup. So we feel like we kind of maybe have maybe a slightly better like understanding of what a big deal it is for Saudi to then beat Argentina or like how just how insane it is, how meme worthy it is. And maybe when it, your, your country's always being represented or, or countries from your continent or your region are always being really, you know, well represented on the world stage, then then the attention's always only been there and really nowhere else. And maybe that's like, but I also feel like this is a chance to kind of shift that. Did you see the the video of the South Korean fan surprising the Qatari uh, news presenter oh when he can speak God. Arabic? So wonderful. <laughs> so, so good. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Where are you from? I'm from South Korea. South Korea. Nice. What happened uh, Korea with Ghana? Ah, yesterday. Yesterday match. Uh, it was so sad because lost uh, Ghana match. But inshallah we will be... Inshallah. You speak Arabic? Yeah, Shwaya Basta. Shwaya Basta. I think one of one of my favorite things is is that humor that's being captured, like the very Arab sense of humor that's being captured as a cross-section with other cultures and then being documented all over like social media platforms. Like I can't believe TikTok is part of this experience. But it's kind of that is special because, you know, we've always watched the World Cup in really distant locations, you know, at least when I say distant, distant to where I've grown up and where I've lived. And and it's always seemed like it's, you know, something so intangible, you know, Brazil. Oh, my goodness. All the way in Brazil. Wow. What a dream. It's just a dream. It's not something that's tangible. And then now it's kind of made its way next door. So even though I'm not there and and in fact, I don't think I was ever even that excited, all excited about the the idea of of Qatar hosting it for various reasons that we'll get into next. But the idea now that it's happening and I'm watching all of this and and there's like all these moments of Arab sense of humor that's being, that's embedded into the legacy of this World Cup um, or the identity of this World Cup is is so much fun to watch. 
I don't think there's a single Saudi fan who did not go up to a news reporter from whatever country and ask where is Messi. Where is Messi? I have one question. Yeah. Ask all the 88,000 where is Messi? Okay. Where is Messi? And then to watch the world actually be part of that is is such an experience in and of itself. I mean, it's nice to export that for a change. And I don't know, I think we've got a good sense of humor. I think, uh, you know, flip side of that coin is also, you know, going into this game, there was a lot of, how do you say this? Lack of clarity about how people should feel towards this year's games. Um, I don't think there's, I don't think the coverage is lost on anyone anymore. I think it's so, you know, there are, there's accusations of human rights violations, of corruption, of um, discrimination against LGBTQ people. And I think criticism is valid. Uh, I don't know that it is entirely reflective or the way that it's being or the way that the criticism is being covered. It seems like it's lacking something. Speaking for myself, I was conflicted. I didn't know how to feel about what anymore. I find myself, you know, very drawn to the World Cup in general. I always have been. Um, But I care about the things, right? I care about the issues. I care that they're happening in my region. Something needs to change. But there was something that felt like an attack. And there's some, there's part of it felt like it was an an attack and it was a bit misdirected. And I think that's where we all kind of had our conflicting opinions. And I didn't know how to form an opinion about this. And so we went out and we kind of tried to get a sense from people all around the world. How are they feeling? What are they? Because you've also seen a reaction to this. And I don't know if this is being translated to the world at large, but you're seeing a very strong reaction mainly from the Middle East. I think the scrutiny is much more heightened when it's an Arab country. And I get it. There's a lot to say. And that's not to eradicate Qatar's faults. I'm sure there's shortcomings and plenty some. But please keep the same energy. Hold all countries to the same standard and then we can talk. Keep that same energy for past hosts, for Russia, for Brazil, and for future hosts like the United States and others. To be it, it doesn't stop you guys from like watching a sport. It does not stop me one bit. Because it's virtue signaling, it's biased. And it's always who has and the big, who I don't know that I agree with that either, right? Like there's a, there, there's the somewhere media, where this conversation needs to be a little bit so more, I don't know what the word is, be, like a more specific be, conversation. I, I don't know how, I, I still don't know. I don't think I still, I still don't think I have an answer. Yeah, it, it is a vicious cycle, I will say. There's criticism pointed at Qatar for all of the human rights violations, you know, the continued discrimination of the LGBTQ plus community in Qatar, in the Gulf and in the Arab world, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But then what that leads to is, you know, many, many members of the of the Arab community here being like, you're pointing your finger at us, but you haven't held a mirror to yourself, which is absolutely correct. I don't know. It's a hard one. I spoke to a fan. My name is Jonathan Dydal. A nice Irish fan that I met at a fan zone in Dubai. Oh, you got to cheer on Brazil. Brazil never harmed anybody. They've got their rainforest. That gives us life. And he, I think, articulated what I have been feeling so well, which is, it's a hard one. So I'm torn because on one hand... Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, gay rights, 
they're all great things and they should be promoted. But on the other hand, if it's someone's religion that something is a sin, how do you approach it? So I'm very torn. I think that if it was my call, I would say allow everything because it's just the right thing to do. But how do we go to someone else's country and tell them what to do? So that's why I'm torn. The discourse, I think, will die down. And before you know it, I think the next mega event is going to roll around wherever criticism is going to be leveled at it and it's just going to repeat itself and I, I don't know i just feel like the lifespan of this discourse is never really long lasting in such a way that it actually makes it significant in the long run but wouldn't it be good if it was in a way i mean i feel like part of the problem here is that the organizers of the world cup um, both on the Qatari side and from FIFA, like a complete sort of unwillingness to engage in any of the criticisms. Like, I totally agree that there's definitely been a lot of anti-Arab racism in the way that it's been talked about and portrayed in at least the UK media. Like, the BBC's decision to not even broadcast the opening ceremony, I think, was unprecedented. And instead, they started it with a with the thing about um, kind of highlighting all of the, the issues of the World Cup. It's the most controversial World Cup in history. And a ball hasn't even been kicked. I still don't know how I feel about that, but I, I almost feel like wouldn't it be good if it was like an opportunity to engage with some of the issues that have come up during the construction of the World Cup instead of shutting it down? And I feel like when you try and shut it down, it makes it worse in a way. I feel like that that's totally fair. And I, I feel like that the ideal, right, should be that you do both, Right. We'll have to see how how accountability becomes a part of this in future World Cups, and I and I hope I hope it does. I think one of the things that was worth thinking about is this idea of separating the sport from from the host or from you know from from sporting nations, and 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 can you really do that? Is is that a thing that that is even attainable? We'll be back after this quick break. Well, so Iran have been one of the teams who have had lots of like political sort of discussions surrounding their football team this World Cup. And me and uh, Al Shibani, who's another producer at Cunning Cultures, went to an Iranian cafe in North London to watch the game with um, a bunch of uh, really lovely sort of middle-aged and older Iranian guys. <laughs> Uh, I'm support Iran because I'm originally from Iran. But uh, you know, the people in Iran they are interested in the football and soccer. But unfortunately, in this situation, I I don't know. You know what's happening in Iran right now? We found that on display immediately that you can't separate the politics from the football of it. Like we had an idea that we want to just sort of watch the game with them and uh, talk to them about the football and talk to them about what it means for them to be watching Iran in the World Cup. But immediately, like. People would spend five seconds talking about that and then would turn to the politics of it. This uh, World Cup is a good opportunity for the player. They have this opportunity to talk behalf on the people and say what's happening in Iran right now. I mean, I think for I think for everyone, at least in that cafe, it was it was really difficult because on the one hand they wanted their team to win because obviously you want your team to win, but on the other hand, a lot of them told us that. 
if Iran won and if Iran did well in the World Cup, it would be used as a sort of win for the regime that all of them were against, especially, you know, with all of the protests and the violence that's been directed towards protesters um, in Iran over the last couple of months. To be honest, for, for 90 minutes, we try to be not look at the game as a politic, you know, but the thing is our heart with our people, but we are confused. But the thing is, we want to win the football as well. But we know if we win the football, the regime in Iran use this for themselves, you know? Yes, as a propaganda. Yeah, it's like really fraught and really difficult because at half time, everyone was telling us like, oh, we don't even want Iran to win. Like, you know, if, if, if they win, it's a win for the regime. And then, like, the game would start and they'd be, like, standing up in their chairs, like, that was offside, like, that's a penalty. <laughs> I love um, that. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think that whole thing of separating the politics from the football, I think any attempt to do that is kind of misguided, especially in this World Cup, but in any World Cup, really. But, Alex, you know, indulge me in, in a little bit of suspension of disbelief here where... I'm in the stadium premises right before the game. And American fans are chanting and then come along the Iranian fans. And then they are together. They're singing. They're chanting. And then they separate. And they come back together. And let's be real. I'm I'm not a U.S.-Iran relations expert. I'm never going to claim that I am, but I think I have a general understanding that let's just say U.S. and Iran are not on the same page. <laughs> but in that moment, to see those sorts of squabbles on a national, international level, if you will, uh, be suspended for a moment and to just see people celebrating the sports, I mean... It was just one of those moments where I was like, huh, maybe for the span of these two to three hours, we can suspend the rules for a little bit. There was just something about it that felt very idyllic and utopian. And I'm not saying that the world is rainbows and ponies because of football, even though I think that's a very easy answer. And a lot of people would say that football is rainbows and ponies. But I must say... I was riding a pony on top of that rainbow that day. <laughs> I I think before it started, like even up to even up to like the day of the opening ceremony, I think um, based on coverage and things I've been seeing even over over the years, by the time you got to the opening ceremony, I was I was like, this is not going to go well. Honestly, this was my, like, this is not going to go well for them. It's just going to be like a complete mess and it's going to fall apart. And there's so much bad coverage and this has been a PR nightmare. This was a, this was a bad idea. But the more, I don't know, like, again, not to do the whole ponies and rainbows thing, but it feels like the football has, has rescued them from that image a little bit. And, and part of it has been, yes, these like surprising outlandish moments from Arab teams impressing where you completely had zero expectations of them and and I think from what I've been at least from a lot of people I've, I've spoken to they have been quite impressed with the organization they've been impressed with the experience there the food is amazing the people are so friendly free visa free fan zone DJs famous singers famous DJs 
free transportation. Metro this way. Metro this way. It's, it's like, like the vibe, it, the atmosphere, everything that you're kind of like criticizing from afar, people are really praising when once they're there. And I feel like it's shifting a little bit as we as we go forward. And I think it will end up for better or worse. I think in the future, this will definitely help Qatar, whether, you know, I think people will forget a lot of things will dissolve as they work on their PR going forward, which now this has given them momentum to do so. But in general, for the region, I don't know that it's going to change anything necessarily. And I don't think this like sense of like Arab unity, Arabs cheering for Arabs, um, you know, people bringing in Palestine into this World Cup unapologetically for the first time ever on a world stage. That is unprecedented. Like all of this is so beautiful right now, but not to be a complete pessimist. But I think it's going to fade once the World Cup is done. I don't think it's going to last much longer. Well, I also just hope that it's like a, it makes people more comfortable in the future with criticizing future World Cups. Because like, there's been, obviously, there's been so much criticism of Qatar, which I think is justified um, to an extent. I think I, I have more of an issue with the tone of it and the way it's delivered. But I think the actual content of it is uh, is valid. Um, but I sadly don't see that happening with the North American World Cup next time. Um, but but what I would hope that is that like this, everything that's happened around Qatar and all the documentaries on Netflix we've seen and the podcasts and like everything that's been written, I think in some ways it's peeled back. If anybody was under any illusion that FIFA was not a corrupt organization before, this, this completely changed with this World Cup. And I and I just hope that yeah, some of the conversations that we've been having around this World Cup like continue for future World Cups. Yeah. I think there's just one thing to remember at the end of the day, even people who are conflicted, you know, who do have these moral dilemmas, continue to watch it because it's still a people's thing. It's still a people's sport. You know, the footballers that are playing are are probably people who have come from very humble backgrounds who are living out like an incredible dream that one in a bajillion people get to live. And and then the people who are watching that are are connected to that sentiment and that emotion of it all, that culture of it all. And that stays with the people, regardless of what organizing body or organizing state or or, or all the drama behind it. And I, I feel maybe that's what keeps people drawn and keeps them willing to watch despite these moral dilemmas that are happening in the background. So we need a we need to overthrow FIFA and replace it with a Love public it. people run socialist FIFA organization. Yeah, a socialist revolution. Let's have socialist FIFA. Oh my gosh. Well, folks, on a, I, th- I guess to wrap on a lighter note, um, I'm curious to hear. You know, what's been your favorite moment so far from the past couple of weeks of games? Well, it's got to be Morocco. It's got to be Morocco. <laughs> I mean, honestly, at the start, like even in the in the group stages, I was like, oh my gosh, like they're impressing when they when they first beat Belgium, I think it was. I was like, oh, cool, impressive. But we have to keep in mind that there were a couple of like Arab teams that were also surprising in the group stages. Like I think Tunisia beat France at some point. Uh, we've mentioned Saudi before beating Argentina. So it was kind of like I felt like, oh, OK, here's another here's another round of exciting football that is just going to go nowhere but then Hakimi their superstar fullback it's just insane 
watching this unfold in our lifetime. I mean, generation after generation, World Cup after World Cup, we've been watching. And there's always like this little bit of hope that we cling on to and nothing really comes of it. But then Morocco steps in in 2022. Pinch me, is this real? (laughs) And boom, explosion. I mean, this is like a dream for us. I mean, uh, before the World Cup started, we were just thinking we're going to go, you know, play three games and come back. It's a feeling that I cannot describe for now, but like when the World Cup is over, we need to change the mentality of just being pessimistic. Oh, we're going to go play three games and come back. You know, why we're not going to reach the final? Why, like, you know, win the World Cup? Just because we are an African country or Arab country, that doesn't mean we, we can't do it. But I think the, the, other, the other really beautiful thing about watching Morocco excel and actually kind of achieve a milestone in football for an Arab nation, the first time we see an Arab country advance to the stage of the World Cup. And that has created this insane reaction from fans across the Middle East. I don't think I've ever seen so many people cheer for the same team at the same time across the whole region and and I think it's also it's kind of um, it's triggered this this sense of Arab identity that I think has been lacking for a very long time and and you see that solidarity and and you see it I think I mean Ahmed you can probably speak more to this since you were in Doha but you can see it in the fan base there I mean it's insane the videos that are coming out of there in the fan zones and in the streets yeah, between the videos that we were getting from a couple of our team members in Morocco and the sights and scenes in Doha, it it felt like a celebration like no other. You know, obviously being the first Arab nation to get this far in the tournament, it was, I think, something that we all could take pride in and be a part of. You don't get the you don't get those kinds of moments a lot these days. <laughs> would you would you go as far to say that this World Cup moment has topped Shakira's Bumbo remix of Hits Don't Lie <laughs> as your I as mean... your new favorite <laughs> World Cup moment? Um, you know what, Alex? I think it has. I think it has. But I guess one moment that really really stuck with me at the end of the game when the team huddled together and a lot of them had the Moroccan flag on their backs and and obviously, you know, it was a very beautiful moment of national pride. But then it seemed like they were waiting for a moment before they they had their team picture taken where they were waiting for a flag to unfurl. And before you know it, it's not the Moroccan flag. It's the Palestinian flag. And to witness that to have that victory be celebrated with the presence of the Palestinian flag, I think was something that was just so, I don't know what the word is. I think what makes that moment so epic is that I think for for it to then enter the stadium at a moment that is historic that 
for the you know for the for the very first time this will be on your wikipedia pages forevermore <laughs> that morocco has advanced this far and when they did they were carrying the palestinian flag that is going down in history for it to be so such a point of focus on a global stage is is amazing and i think the moroccan fans have already demonstrated that now their team is also demonstrating that which is huge i don't know if people can grasp that but it's massive i mean i think you put those two things together and it's it's poetry you know what to tell my kids like when, when they gotta grow up they you know gotta yeah I'm gonna tell them I was there. I attended every single game, and 22 was a special one for Morocco. <laughs> we, we live in the dream. This episode was produced by Ben Barkawi, Alex Aitak, and Ahmed Ashur, with help from Sara Rishik, Al Shaybani, Shahid Bani Ode, Maher Ali, Sumaya Abu Abdullah, Yusuf Duwazu, Sara Adduri, and Zena Duidar. It was edited by Sara Rishik and me, Dana Balut. Sound design was by Munzir Al Hashim, and our team includes Nadine Shakir and Finbar Anderson. Our sister podcast, Masafat, has also released an episode about Qatar's World Cup in Arabic. And to hear that and other incredible stories like this one from the Middle East and North Africa and all the spaces in between, search Masafat, M-A-S-A-F-A-T, in your podcast app. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this World Cup madness as much as we did. It's great meeting you. I hope your podcast is brilliant. I've only met you for 30 seconds, but I'm sure it's the goddamn best podcast in the world. You know, it's probably better than the Joe Rogan experience. And that's the fact. That's the fact. In fact, I'm going to check it out.